Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we're back. Uh, but before we start, I'm going to give a thank you, give a little thank you to Teresa and to Emily for becoming our newest patrons. Thank you, Teresa and Emily. And if you're interested in supporting the show and getting our monthly newsletter along with other perks, you can head over to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast to learn more. And thank you everyone for your patience while we took a tiny break to get all caught up after the SAA conference. And also thank you to everyone who stopped by our booth during the conference as well. We are back with your regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast programming. Yeah. So this week, it's time, unfortunately, for all of us, for Anna to pack up that sea lion impression because we've got another type of ore to talk about today. (laughs) 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 To clarify, listeners, in the script, I was given directions in brackets to warp, sadly. I hope I've done so. (laughs) Indeed. Today we're hanging out in the Great Lakes region of North America during what some might argue is a calcolithic. Um, if you don't know what the or a calcolithic is, dear listener, um, that might be partially our fault uh, since we've almost never discussed it on the show. Whoopsies. <laughs> so um, the word calcolithic comes from the Greek word kalkos, meaning copper. And it's alternatively called the Copper Age or the Enealithic from Aeneas, the Latin word for copper. Also the guy, but he's not relevant today um, because we're talking about copper. We're going to be talking about the old copper complex, sometimes called the old copper culture. If you'll remember back to our episode on the BMAC, the Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex, uh, we talked a bit about the differences between um, complex and culture. And so a complex is like a group of artifacts and traits that are sort of shared across like a geographical space within a period of time. Um, A culture is... A more of a collection of archaeological, obs- archaeologically observable data. So I like it has more to of, do with like shared behavior among a yeah, group of people versus a collection of things that related people may have created. A, yeah, a type of thing that you see across space during like through a period of time. Yes, um, and so the culture and complex are used um, by uh, different researchers for different reasons, um, but we'll probably I'll probably keep referring to it as a complex, um, just out of what I've seen. 
and and what I've read and also just like to stick with something. Um, and also because we're mostly talking about a technology today. We're not really talking so much about the lives of the people who developed or benefited from that technology. We're not trying to say, or um, in no way should you take us to like to take it to mean that there's nothing to be known about uh, the people who created or benefited from this technology. Um, it's not unknown or unknowable. Um, and we're going to include some sources if you want to learn more about um, the, the other evidence for social so complexity and social and society. Um, so among what we're, the we're doing, doing is, this. is we're, we're talking about the technology used by different groups of people throughout a certain geographic area, but we're not defining that technology as those people, right? Those people yeah. are not defined as the things they create. It's like, you know, pots yeah. aren't people. It's people sharing a similar technological strategy, but also these groups of people may have had, you know, among them may have had different social practices, behaviors, etc. So there's not just yeah. sort of one monolithic culture that we're talking about, but we are talking about one single type of like a category of technology. Yeah. And so, which is the old copper complex. Um, the old and so, copper complex. <laughs> so um, again, this is an archeological name for a collection of things made a certain way. Um, so the name was applied retroactively by people studying the materials. So it's, it's not they, like nobody like, they it. didn't come up with it. It's not an end yeah. game. Yeah. We are the old copper. No, that was assigned to them no. backwards. <laughs> old copper complex was my father. <laughs> Please. <laughs> the old copper complex refers to items made by the early inhabitants of the Great Lakes region during a period that spans several thousand years and covers several thousand square miles. And to be clear, we're, we're up in North America, what is now North America. The Great Lakes. The most conclusive evidence suggests that native copper was utilized, so native being local to the Great Lakes, not like... Nope. It's not that. <laughs> not anything else. Nope. <laughs> it's just, no, it just means local. Found yeah. there. But that you just dig, you dig it up. Locally sourced. Right there. Um, Farm to table copper. Mine to table. Yeah, mine. That's much better. The most conclusive evidence suggests that native copper was utilized to produce a wide variety of tools in the Middle Archaic period, which is circa 4000 BCE. The vast majority of this evidence comes from dense concentrations of old copper finds in eastern Wisconsin. These copper tools covered a broad range of artifacts type, artifact types, like axes, adzes, various forms of projectile points, knives, perforators, fish hooks, and harpoons. So by about 1500 BCE, artifact forms began to shift from utilitarian objects to personal ornaments. According to some researchers, this shift has to do with the beginnings of social stratification in the local societies. So if you want to show that you're you're fancy um, and you know, you've got money to burn, uh, you got to have some copper ornaments. Be like, look mm -hmm. at my luxury goods. I have them because I have an excess of of resources and time. How much of this stuff is there? Um, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, Mr. P.D. Lawson of Menasha, Wisconsin. You know Wisconsin, him. You love him. P.D. <laughs> he compiled the most comprehensive inventory of old copper 
wink, um, in the state, um, estimated to be at least 13,000 copper artifacts. Um, and uh, most of them, <laughs> a lot of them, are at the Milwaukee Public Museum there yes. in Wisconsin. Which is where so, I got this information. <laughs> Uh, so on a bit of a downer note, since this initial tabulation, it's difficult to assess the total number of old copper artifacts so far discovered, um, but it could be in the range of 20,000. Um, and so evidence suggests that we'll need, you'll remember this, this thing I'm going to say, remember this for about 45 minutes from now. Um, <laughs> just put a pin in it. Um, evidence suggests that the total number of retrievable, um, catalogable uh, old copper complex objects uh, would have been much, much greater, but early European settlers to the area melted it down and used it. So like yeah. they, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> like cool. I mean, great for them. Um, like not, but like of all, the recycle. To, of all the things to do with material yeah. culture, um, reusing it into something else because if it's a raw material if it's a material that can be reused yeah um then it then it it continues its life yes um and so you see you see this a lot in lots of places um for for especially for metals for metals and for um like stones like Mm -hmm. masonry will get Mm -hmm. reused sometimes wood in more arid places it happens yeah so that's where some of it went remember that As far as distribution, the old copper complex materials really got around. So um, they're most prevalent in terms of where they're recorded findings around uh, Lakes Superior and Michigan. Artifacts have been have been excavated from contexts um, as far east as what is today central New York State, um, as far north and west as in what is today Manitoba, and all the way south um, as the current area where Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois meet up along the Ohio River. So if you think about, so if you pull up a map uh, um, and you look at the Great Lakes region in North America, it's a, it's a, a large space, but also um, it does seem to be uh, the old copper complex is found all around the Great Lakes and then further beyond that. Um, so that's a lot of, a a lot lot of ground of covered. Yeah. Yeah. So what is so special about a calcolithic? Why does everybody want one? And why are some researchers so insistent that early people in the Americas didn't have one? Well, that's kind of the whole gist of this episode. So stick around because Amber and I might learn something. Next, allow me, and by me, I mean David Malakoff over at Science Magazine, to set the scene. About 8,500 years ago, hunter-gatherers living beside Eagle Lake in Wisconsin hammered out a conical 10-centimeter-long projectile point made of pure copper. The finely crafted point, used to hunt big game, highlights a new world technological triumph, David Malakoff's words, not mine, and a puzzle. A new study of that artifact and other traces of prehistoric mining concludes that what is known as the old copper culture emerged, then mysteriously faded, far earlier than once thought. The dates show that early Native Americans were among the first people in the world to mine metal and fashion it into tools. They also suggest a regional climate shift might help explain why, after thousands of years, the pioneering metallurgists abruptly stopped making most copper tools and largely returned to stone and bone implements. 
When researchers began to date the artifacts in mines, they saw a perplexing pattern. The dates suggested the people of the old copper culture began to produce metal tools about 6,000 years ago, and then, for reasons that weren't clear, mostly abandoned copper implements about 3,000 years ago. After that, early Native Americans used copper mostly for smaller, less utilitarian items associated with adornment, like beads and bracelets, for your fancy times. About 10 years ago, David Pompiani, a geologist at Kansas State University, Manhattan, which is in Manhattan, Kansas, what? began doctoral research that cast doubt on the old copper timeline. He extracted sediment cores from lakes adjacent to prehistoric mines on Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula and Isle Royale and measured trace metals in the cores, including lead and titanium, that had been released by processing the ore. The analyses showed copper mining began about 9,500 years ago in some areas, some 3,500 years earlier than once thought. It also ended earlier, about 5,400 years ago. A team led by Pompiani presents new evidence for the revised timeline. The researchers used modern methods to reanalyze 53 radiocarbon dates, including eight that were newly collected, associated with the old copper culture. Some came from wood or cordage still attached to spear points. Others came from charcoal, wood, or bone found at mines and human burials. The oldest reliably dated artifact turned out to be the 8,500-year-old projectile point found in Wisconsin. You remember that from the intro I read five minutes ago? <laughs> yeah. The older window for Old Copper's Peak doesn't surprise archaeologist Michelle Weber of Kent State University, more from her in a little bit, who has studied the culture. The dates confirm, she says, that hunter-gatherers were highly innovative, willing to regularly experiment with novel materials, end quote. So, working with copper. People here did it. They had copper. Did they have a calcolithic? Over to you, Amber. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, we know that people were working with copper very early in North American prehistory, and really very early in world history uh, period as we very were, early yeah just early yeah. um but where did they get it where did they get, get it the copper where did they get that copper where's the copper from um, fortunately for archaeologists uh though maybe less fortunate on an environmental scale mining is a dirty business and it leaves a mark on the landscape the veins of copper that ripple through the bedrock of Michigan's Isle Royale State Park drew the attention of early Native Americans who used the metal to make tools. However, many details of their activities, such as when they mined, remain hidden behind the thick haze of time. Now, new research suggests that Isle Royale's mining boom peaked about 6,000 years ago and left a legacy of aquatic pollution. The high levels of copper, lead, and potassium in sediments from a cove on the island point to a long and intense period of indigenous mining. One such indicator of mining activity is lead, which would have leached from mine tailings and vaporized when miners heated copper to shape the metal, only to collect again in nearby waters. David Pompiani, remember him? From two minutes ago. Um, and colleagues previously found lead pollution in 8,000 to 5,000-year-old sediments along the south shore of Lake Superior. They interpreted this pollution as evidence of an extended era of widespread copper mining on uh, Michigan's Keweenaw. Yeah, I I said Keweenaw, but it could be Keweenaw or... If anyone is from that area, let us know. 
please and thank you. In nearby Macargo Cove, a deep inlet that cuts diagonally across the island's glacial striations, the researchers found elevated levels of lead and copper, along with potassium, a byproduct of the fires used for mining and annealing. At their peak, lead and copper concentrations reached values in order of magnitude greater than background levels and about half as high as those associated with modern contamination. The copper is volcanic in origin. The way that copper is formed in volcanoes is still not completely understood because copper ore is usually a mix of copper and sulfur. But volcanoes rich in copper tend to be poor in sulfur, so that combination can't come from volcanoes alone. In 2015, a research team from the University of Bristol in the UK published a paper in which they suggested that salt-rich fluids, <laughs> gravy, or brines, um, yeah. which um, Anna thinks is just like maybe ocean water or groundwater that seeped down and collected lots of minerals along the way. Yeah, you can keep um, your turkey in it. <laughs> uh, can seep down several kilometers into the Earth's crust, and then when that salty liquid meets volcanic magma, it causes the copper in the magma to crystallize out of it and form concentrated chunks of copper sulfides, aka copper ore. Um, so, if we haven't made it clear so far, we like don't know a lot about geology. Um, and we're absolutely so we're putting- not geologists. <laughs> yeah. I took one um, class. So- I took a class too. So we're putting out a call for anyone who understands this better than we do. Um, send us an email. We're the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you know stuff about rocks. Um, Please let us know yeah. that stuff about rocks. If you are a rock professional, um, please let us know. Um, so if we get more information, listeners, we will share it on another episode. Um, but. <laughs> People mind for stuff. this episode. They were yeah. Do you know? Do, do you know where Isle Royale is, Anna? It's in Lake Superior, and it's an island. So it is. It's technically well. It it belongs to the U.S. It it's part of Michigan, but it is really close from the from Ontario, up by Thunder Bay, Ontario, um, which led me to listen to Garth Brooks' song "Thunder Rolls" like six times in a row. Are you familiar with "Thunder Rolls" by Garth Brooks? I'm, I've probably heard it, but I mean, you I have to call it to mind. You, you, you like have to. You have to know Garth Brooks now. Didn't when you moved in? Didn't they like give you a? They had me sing. Catalog? I got friends in low places, which I already knew. So I yeah, nailed well, that. Gotta, I did that at the border. Yeah. Well, no, you have to, you have to do that. Like, I think like when you, um, is it every six months? I don't know. I, you probably should go to the courthouse because like, okay. well, you, the rules are different is, now for social distancing. So he is, he's like, he has a busy schedule. <laughs> he has to be there to officiate. <laughs> I don't think he still lives there, but he's from there. <laughs> um, he, well, okay. Enough about the 1990 hit. Thunder Rolls. Uh, excellent song. But this is Isle Royale. So Isle Royale is in Lake Superior. I'm back with we're back. you. We're back. We're back. So it's like technically part, it's like considered to be part of the peninsula, but um, it's not, a, it's an island. But that's, so this is like far north Michigan, the part of Michigan that like sticks into Canada. <laughs> so how do people mine this stuff? Um, pretty much the way you think that they might have mined it. It's like a hole. <laughs> and um, smashing <laughs> rocks with other rocks. <laughs> kind of how we mine stuff. Uh, not today. Now we 
cut off the top of a mountain and put it in the creek and ruin everyone's water. And right. That's right. that's how we mine today. Right, right. Mm. Mm. Um but to contribute a little bit more nuance to uh, our learned learned words here, um, let's go back to the Milwaukee Public Museum. During the 19th and early 20th centuries, the prevailing theories of old copper production in Wisconsin reflected the social climate of the period, which was rooted in both naivete and racism. Going to come back to that. Add, add this to the pile of stuff you're remembering for the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, just, everyone's so, listening with a little book of sticky notes. Just, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, the popular belief was that this sophisticated technology could not have been the product of the indigenous tribes who occupied the Great Lakes <sighs> region before European settlement. Previous theories claimed that Bronze Age peoples from Europe made their way to Lake Superior to supply the demand for copper across the Atlantic Ocean. Other dubious theories attributed this copper production variously to the Phoenicians, the Berbers, and the Vikings. Not surprisingly, no archaeological evidence has been found to substantiate such notions. Put a pin in that for something I'm going to talk about at the very end, about evidence to substantiate such notions. Wink. There has been little dispute over the last century that the primary copper sources that were exploited by the old copper complex manufacturers came from natural ore deposits spanning 120 miles along the southern shores of Lake Superior on the Kawina Peninsula. Can't even say peninsula. (laughs) Um, This native metal has an exceptional ratio of pure copper typically over 95%. The most heavily utilized mines were discovered at Isle Royale, Kiwina, and Ontonagon. Ontonagon. Yeah, probably Ontonagon. New shape just dropped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many sides um, does an Ontonagon have? Ontonagon. And there were hundreds of mines throughout the larger region, perhaps even thousands. The mines themselves might extend just a few feet or as much as 30 feet into gravel and solid rock. Recent analysis of these prehistoric copper pits has generated great debate regarding the amount of copper extracted from them. Precisely what tonnage of copper was mined (laughs) is difficult to determine, but as no comprehensive study of the prehistoric mines has been completed, the largest estimate puts the total extracted copper ore at as much as 1.5 billion pounds. Wow. Which like. That's a lot. How big is the earth? (laughs) <laughs> the earth turns out is quite big it's so big there's a lot of rocks in uh, there's there so much there's so much. again not a geologist big bag of rocks and, like was i'm looking at that number being like was How? there a dent in the earth <laughs> like, now we're lost a series of very small dents um however The real amount of native copper ore extracted during the prehistoric period is currently unknown by people other than us, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, like, actual (laughs) experts. Yeah. There is less contention regarding the techniques used to extract the copper from bedrock. Thousands of grooved hammerstones have been found in and around these prehistoric mining pits, supporting the theory that a great deal of manual labor was necessary to remove the copper ore. Another useful technique likely used to extract the ore was via thermal-induced shattering, in which miners would light a fire beside a desired vein of ore, thus heating the rock surface, and then they would do what you're not supposed to do to your good 
saute pans, apply cold water directly to this hot surface would cause the rock to shatter, allowing for easier removal of the copper ore. So once the copper was extracted, the primary method of tool manufacture was by hammering the ore into the desired form. An additional fabrication technique was annealing. Oh, here's where I get to explain annealing. I mean, again, you've talked about it before. I have, and I forgot what it was and explained it wrong above, so I'm going to do it right (laughs) now. Annealing, a process in which the ore was heated to a more malleable state, then hammered into shape. Analysis of these artifacts exhibits obvious signs of layering caused by hammering and folding the copper to produce the finished product. To date... Okay, so I understand. Annealing is... So rather than melting it all down and then putting it into something to like make mm-hmm. it the shape you want, annealing is getting it is is like is like when you make Jolly Rancher roses and you put it in hot water and you just sort of like you get a little smushy and you yeah it doesn't completely it. melt but it turns okay. into a more malleable metal and then you can bash it into shape. You don't mold okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Jolly Rancher roses, not stained glass cookies. Correct. Okay. In Amber's baking corner. <laughs> <laughs> to to date, there is no convincing evidence, Amber, that archaic populations of the old copper complex smelted copper to pour into pre-made molds. Indeed, many copper artifacts show extreme uniformity and quality, indicating a high degree of technological specialization. So let me make it clear. They knew what they were doing. They were heating the copper and working it, but they weren't melting it and molding it. So they were, there's a difference here between the amount of heat and the type, the way that the heat is applied. Um, you need a much higher, hotter burning furnace to completely melt metals, but to get them kind of red hot enough to work, you don't need to use as quite as much fuel and doesn't have to burn quite as hot. So, so like smithing, smithing, smiths, smiths, do, do annealing. They do hammer work. Yes, they do. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. This has led to speculation that old copper complex artisans did, in fact, reach the level of smelting copper ore, but there's no evidence of the molds that they used or any any of that. So exactly where these centers of innovation were located is so far poorly understood, (laughs) like my understanding of the Great Lakes. Yet the distribution of old copper finds across the landscape provides some indication of where the core copper complex areas were concentrated. So let's take a brief break because that was a lot of information. And when we come back, I'll explain a little bit more about how cold metalworking works. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back and we are along with not being geologists, definitely not metal workers, although I have done a bit of dabbling over the years. That's Amber, why I keep you- asking you about these things, because I just, just like assume that I mean, you know I, about it. I did a semester of metal-based art in college. and then- Which is like far more than I've done. Okay. We don't know very much about the properties of various metals and how one goes about working them. But Terrence Bell from ThoughtCo has our backs. Terrence says... In most cases, metal is cast or forged into the desired shape after it is made malleable through the application of heat. Cold working refers to the process of strengthening metal by changing its shape without the use of heat. Subjecting the metal to this mechanical stress causes a permanent change to the metal's crystalline structure, causing an increase in strength. So you basically smash the metal until it gets stronger. Metal is rolled between... <laughs> Sounds a lot like my 20s. It's like life. <laughs> the crucible. Metal is rolled between two rollers or drawn through, either pushed or pulled, smaller holes. As the metal is compressed into sheets, the grain size, so the, 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 <laughs> the gauge or the denier of the metal can be reduced. See, I know a stocking word. Do that. Denier is the the number that indicates the sheerness of stockings, in case you didn't know. Uh, The metal can be reduced, increasing strength within grain size tolerances. Metal can also be sheared to form it into the desired shape. So the process of cold working gets its name because it is conducted at temperatures below the metal's recrystallization point, i.e. melting point. Mechanical stress is used instead of heat to affect change, but my understanding is that part of messing around with mechanical stress, like heat uh, hitting it a lot is actually heat because you're forcing molecules past one another as you smash the metal around. And I think that generates friction and heat. Cause I remember something about the more you work metal, it actually heats up on its own. Um, so it's, but that's not going to get it anywhere near the white hot temperatures you'd need for, um, for molding or, um, blacksmith type forging. So the most common applications for the process of cold working in terms of the metals that it's used for are steel, aluminum, and copper. And when these metals are cold worked, permanent defects change their crystalline makeup. So metal is a crystal structure. And so the defects reduce the ability of the crystals to move around within the metal structure, and the metal becomes more and more resistant to further deformation. So as you strike it, the crystalline structure becomes more and more rigid and you want to do this up to a point because up to a point you are strengthening the material but if you go past that point it's actually going to become more brittle and so you want a a sort of give and take between strength and um, flexibility so what are our criteria for having a calcolithic if there's all this argument about whether or not the indigenous people in North America had a calcolithic is it working with copper to improve its properties so it works as a better material for tools because they were definitely doing that in the old copper complex. The only thing it doesn't seem that there's direct evidence for them doing is smelting and and um, molding with liquid metal. So anyways, 
it really seems like these were people who understood their material and worked it in a way that did exactly what they wanted. So why is there a prevailing opinion, or at least a history of this opinion, that North America never had a true Calcolithic or Copper Age? Honestly, and here's another sticky note for you, some of this may just be racism. We already have that sticky note. It's like three (laughs) copies of it. But there is another possible factor that has two components. First, around 3,000 years ago in North America, the archaeological record seems to show an abandonment of the use of copper tools and a preference for stone tools instead. That's quite different from what you see in other areas where copper working develops. Usually you'd expect a progression from stone tools to copper to alloys like bronze, etc., The other component is the unusual purity of North American deposits of copper. And so this is um, from a nature paper published in 2019 by Michelle Beber, mentioned above, et al. But also, and we're going to take a little... Who is all? Who is all in this? Et al. Because one of the authors on this paper, the last author actually... Oh. is Metin Aaron, who is the person who did the frozen poop knife experiment. <laughs> have we talked about this on the show yet? I don't yet? think we have. I don't so <laughs> this is based on, so, and it's, it's worth talking about just because of just like, God, I love experimental archaeology. Um, <laughs> there is an old anecdote that a minor, no, not a minor, uh, a fur trapper up in the Arctic once was um, stranded during a snowstorm and lost his bearings. And so he was, you know, unable to find his way home. And so needed to survive in the wilderness and he had no tools with him. And so the, the anecdote says that he fashioned, it's so cold (laughs) as his poop froze, so cold as poop froze. And he fashioned a knife out of it and uh, survived that way. And so that was, that's the story. And this was an experimental archaeological paper that was published based on experimental testing of this story. And I'll, um, I'll leave it there. We can attach the, we can put the, that paper on our show notes if you want to. Um, I thought the I thought it was read about um, it. that somebody like got murdered. That's a, a famous knife. like who done it. I think you're thinking because it's an icicle. Definitely, you can be stabbed to death with an icicle, icicle and then poop. Whatever. No, the, the key part <laughs> is that the icicle melts and you're left with no evidence. Yeah, you'd still no, be I left with a yeah. pile of poop. <laughs> Just melted. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great. <laughs> I'm a detective. Well, <laughs> All right. So that's, you know, <laughs> this is knives out too. <laughs> knives out number knives two. Out number two. <laughs> <laughs> mm, good night, everybody. All right. Back to these copper experiments, because that is what we're actually talking about. So experimental archaeology. Okay, again, so Matt and yes. Aaron is a experimental archaeology. Person. Yes, he is. So that's yes. what they do. Okay. He has a lab like this is. No, but, but like that's thing. like sort of it's very much his thing. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so he's um, yes, that's why he's on this paper. So this is copper experiments. And so the experiment consisted of creating 30 replica copper blades from a copper source in Michigan that was in use during the old copper complex. So they sourced copper from there. 30 stone flakes produced from chert common to the American Midwest. So, you know, what people during the... So what, what we're trying to test is why the switch back from copper tools to stone tools. And so this was chert that would have been around in that area as well. And they did sharpness and durability testing, making multiple cuts with each tool on soft plastic. Um, The reason they didn't use animal tissue to make the cuts is because animal tissue can be very varied depending on 
the type of animal, the type of hide, how old the hide is, how old the animal was, you know, too many variables. So soft plastic was used. And they, so that's the constant, like that's, the yes, that is the, okay. the constant material. And so they tested the copper blades and the chert blades for initial sharpness, final sharpness and durability. And so the result was that stone knives not only start off sharper, but they stay sharper than copper knives. So here's the thing. In most other parts of the world where copper occurs, it occurs in natural alloys with other metals. So that copper, that very, very pure, 95% pure copper up in the Great Lakes region, even if it was only cold worked, would have been stronger and more durable. And so these people didn't need to alloy metal because they had such pure workable copper. They didn't need to really smelt it. Um, In the case of the old copper complex, Um, reverting to stone tools was actually a way to ramp up efficiency rather than a step backwards, especially if, as we mentioned earlier, there was a climatic shift around 3,000 years ago, um, leading to copper production. Even if you're not melting it down, it requires a lot of resources in terms of fuel needed to to melt that or uh, soften that copper. And so if the climate shifted and there were fewer fuel resources available, um, switching to stone tools might have actually been a more effective use of local resources. And that would explain why you have a return to stone tools for utilitarian items, but still a use of copper for, for your flashy uh, yeah, accessories. Because it like looks great. You're like, yeah, it's great. I yeah. got it around. Works with all skin tones. It's a, you know, crap knife, but not a crap knife. Uh, <laughs> no, no, not like, that one. So like I, that, yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That and this so this is I, actually like technological advancement, not sort yeah, of. Yeah. Or at least just sort of maintenance. Like it's technological, like this works, this is better. And so. Yeah. But I'm saying like, yeah, like, like looking for something that is like more. It's not a step back. efficient. Yes. And, um, and a better use of, of yeah. resources. Exactly. So I don't think it's necessarily fair. I mean, me, the expert weighing in. On this topic. Um, But, you know, from what little I know, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that North America never had a calcolithic. The initial conditions are not the same as in other places where you do eventually see progression to bronze and other alloys after a bona fide calcolithic. So these people knew how to how to uh, work metal. They knew how to do it in a way that was perfectly practical given the raw material they had. And they knew that the tools that they were making were not quite as good as what they could produce with stone. So eventually copper use died out. But yeah, the other part of this is, is pretty much racism. So-, so, you're tell- so you're telling me that these like old precepts of sort of the stages of man and archaeological development aren't rules good yeah they aren't rules they aren't lateral laws what well mind blown (laughs) i know we could just call the show here but uh we got a little bit more to go so let's have an ad and we'll be right back This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. 
Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Oh, um, just now, dude, somebody say racism? I did mm-hmm. say that mm-hmm. word, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, no backing up here because y'all just found yourselves in pseudo-archaeology corner. Oh no, how did <laughs> I get here? Oh, no. <laughs> where did you, where did you turn? Um, so remember a few weeks, months, I don't know what it was ago, <laughs> a while back, not that long ago, I don't know, um, when, we discussed the Min- when we discussed the Minoans, uh, this was during our Volcanoes episode. Remember, remember, we talked about the Minoans and we talked about how they were on the island of Thera and then the island blew up and then like they stopped being on the island. Um, but not because they all died. They weren't from there. They weren't from there. <laughs> uh, remember that? Well, they're back. I do. Um, I and do. this Great. time, they brought the Atlantis myth with them. No. Yeah. So, um, Anna, are you familiar with the work of Gavin Menzies or Mingus? I don't know which pronunciation he goes by. I don't either. And no. Okay. I'm not. Okay. I don't know why this man that I in no way respect. I'm like trying to like respect his surname. Um, if he does go with like the, it belongs the Gaelic to not just him. I don't know. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, Gavin here, um, you may know him from his, his, his first hit China discovered North America first. Good for them. Um, are you like, okay. So um, no, I don't know any of guy, anything about okay. this. So this man, uh remember man writes book this was like a okay so people who aren't in the text thread between me and anna um don't know this but i um a few days ago i was just like really mad and i was talking to anna about how like oh like another man with a book (laughs) just like really because it's not that i don't want men to write books it's that like (laughs) this man shouldn't write a book so he got the idea for the book so gavin menzies Mingus is um he's a retired uh like submarine engineer he's like a he's like a underwater boatman um and so he went to China on his 25th wedding anniversary uh, with his his lovely wife um and they went and to the forbidden they went to the forbidden city and then he just didn't stay in his lane. No, 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 don't worry. Don't don't <laughs> no, no. It's so much more than him not staying in his lane. Mm. Um and like the date, the year 1421 CE kept coming up and he was just like, man, like so much stuff happened then. So when he got home from his, from his anniversary trip, he wrote a book about everything that happened in 1421 and it was everything. It was 1,500 pages long and it oh. took years to write. And then he talked to a, an agent who was like, this book sucks. Like they, they said, like, you can't write. But this one thing where you mentioned, um, I think Zhang He is the name oh, of the, yes. the, the guy. A very famous Chinese pirate, effectively. Yeah. And so there was a little brief thing about like him possibly finding North America first. Um, And he's like, I liked that part. Could that be the book? And so he just like, 
and he was like, well, I'm not a natural writer. So maybe you could write the first three chapters, Mr. Agent Man. And so Mr. Agent Man wrote the first three chapters of his book. And then Mr. eventually he like, <laughs> like produced a book about how Zheng He came to North America. Well, just the Americas, because I think that there was a Chinese city in like Patagonia or something. And he wrote this like big old bad book that nobody at the publishing house like did any like fact checking. They were like, we'll take your word for it. What a great book. And so he wrote this whole book that like where, and it got like complete and he got, it was ghostwritten too. So he got a ghostwriter. And so he was just like, and then I think this, and then this, and then this guy went here and this, and you know, just like, what do you do with that like it's not like where's the evidence and so it's (laughs) so like that just like blew my mind um but and so surely this has been reviewed well yeah there's a really amazing review in like the journal of international history about it but so he did a follow-up book on like 1435 36 a few years later when china went to italy and started the renaissance and so after the, so he took a few years off and then he came out with, um, oh gosh, what is it called? I didn't even write down what it's called because it's like a super long name. The Lost Empire of Atlantis, History's Greatest Mystery Revealed. And then I think there's more to it, like how the Manoans came. Mm. No, it's like, it's so long. It's such a long title. Jason Colavito, the actual, actual historian and great yeah, follow and on who, Twitter. Great follow on Twitter, great follow on his blog. He did like an exhaustive blow by blow review of this book, like each chapter. It's like a five part review, I'll include it in the show notes. Um, and but what it really boils down to is this quote that I'm going to read to you. Gavin Menzies' entire case for Minoan transatlantic trade exists on the backs of a shipload of copper and a dried beetle. The supposedly American tobacco beetle was likely indigenous to the old world in the Bronze Age, according to recent researchers, and the copper supposedly so pure it could only come from Lake Superior is indistinguishable from smelted old world copper, according to academics who study copper. With these facts in mind, we can proceed to evaluate Menzies' claims about the Minoans' American empire. And so there's a part in which... Um, the copper, like the Minoan copper that, that Menzies talks about is, a fair amount of that is copper from the Ulubarun shipwreck, which is a Bronze Age shipwreck off the coast of Turkey. Yep. Okay. And there's there's, <laughs> there's copper in it. Yes. Um, and so. And little, little biscuits with ears. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Big yep. old, big old biscuits. And then so I'm going to like read a little bit more from from Jason Colavito, who says, the chapter starts with Menzies' confession that he believes, quote, at least some, end quote, of the Ulubarun copper came from Lake Superior. Oh, which parts? And if there's pure copper that didn't come from there, what right do you have to suppose that any did? Uh, well, it must have. Otherwise, there would be no reason to suspect the Minoans ventured across the Atlantic in search of copper. So it's this right. idea that they that they were just like, total like copper monsters they're like oh god we got so much copper because we are out here crushing it chomp, chomp, and chomp, 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 chomp. so they go all the way to north america to find it and they're like this where is they the know that there's copper, copper having where nothing. they know that there's a ton Obviously. of copper and and so they bring the copper back and it's great copper and um and they put it on a and ship and then also um menzies thinks that he uses um the the texts from Sargon of Akkad, mm-hmm. um, who says that he got 
his copper from the Minoans who had gone to England, what is now England, um, right. in 2350 BCE. So 2350 BCE, this is the, the reign of Sargon of Akkad, because he talks about how um, the he went to like the he went through the like the upper sea to the land beyond the upper sea, which the like northish. It's it's like Anatolia, yeah, um, not, and, not quite as far and, north and west as yeah yeah. So not like to the edge of you know past like the Straits of Gibraltar to like to no. like not not out there not that way. Um, but. But, but this is a guy who like doesn't he's he's using he uses pseudo historical sources that have been debunked and I will include some uh, stuff on the show notes that are just like pretty good like articles that were just written like oh, 50 years ago being like here's what's up and um so like this is by not correct by not by not using citations so by not citing and then um Colavito finds some places where he like makes oblique references to different things he uses as citations you're able to like sort of patch together what pseudo histories are being used and uh, so it's not even this was like what was like really like Just, troubling me because it's not like it's not like misusing data and misusing an article it's like you don't have it evidence like you don't you're not no it's you made up any. you just made it up yeah and um and you're sort of and like un- vaguely buttressing it with sort of related things that for people who won't look farther than the fact that there is a vague citation are just like yeah okay a professor said it Maybe like, like this guy said it this this man wrote a book man um, writes book man writes book <laughs> oh one day woman <sighs> writes book this is one day but I would, yeah, but I just like got in like a really dark place with like somebody let this man publish and like make a ton of money off of his book. That's just like actual lies. Like, it's just, yeah, it's like just, you like, made up your book, that. but at least it's a novel. <laughs> um, and so, um, of all places, there's a, there's a blog or something um, on chapelboro.com. And it's so it's sort of a like, North Carolina, like regional. Thing. Oh, huh. I think it's a radio station. Um, and so there's a column, and somebody's talking about man reads book. <laughs> um, and so there's another piece of Menzies argument that I wanted to, that I mentioned to you, to Anna specifically before. Um, and I yes. just wanted to bring this up here because I think it's something that is um, worth looking into. So this person writes, quote, the last and best piece of evidence, because he had gone through, like, this copper was so pure. We can't find the copper in, like, the area. Like, this, and so, like, those sorts of, the things. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, this last one, this, this, this one we really got to get into because it is so good. Uh, the descendants of the Minoans on Crete, as well as the current populations in European and Middle Eastern countries where the Minoans were known to have significant interactions, yes, the double entendre was intended, have a genetic it's not marker a good joke their- if you have to explain the joke. A wink. Um, have a genetic marker on their mitochondrial DNA known as haplogroup X. X. Or t- is it 10? No, it's X. Okay. Um, the overlay of the geographic distribution of haplogroup X and the known Minoan trading empire is nearly exact, providing strong evidence that the Minoans were the source of this genetic material. In surveying the globe for other populations which have haplogroup 
Group X, the Ojibwe and Chippewa tribes in the vicinity of Lake Superior were found to have this marker. Further, but studying the extent of mutations within the haplogroup, group, it is possible to determine that the introduction of this genetic material into the local Native American populations occurred contemporaneously with the copper mining. The immense amount of labor involved in extracting all of this copper would have involved employing local Native Americans. Oh, come on. The close re- contact between Minoan men and Native American women, not surprisingly, seems to have resulted in the mixing of genetic material. Sir? So, Anna, Sir. can you help us understand what is being alleged here yes like and and like tell us why it's wrong but like what is he what is this person arguing uh this person is arguing that the minoans contributed a significant amount of genetic material to populations that are now indigenous groups in north america haplogroups describe a series of related genetic populations that are identifiable through mitochondrial DNA. And so mitochondrial DNA is different from our nuclear DNA where our human genome is located. The mitochondrial DNA is located in the mitochondria of our cells. Yeah, it's different. We have different DNAs. We do. And this is, what do we get out of strawberries? (laughs) Their DNA, not human. Is it their mitochondrial DNA or their nuclear? I believe it's their nuclear DNA. Oh my God. Okay. So we have two um, different DNAs. So this is really cool. This is evidence that mitochondria were once a totally different life form. And so like way, 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 way back in the days when there were just kind of single cell organisms blooping around, um, um, the organism that became a mitochondria got subsumed by another cell, but didn't entirely stop being its own thing. And so mitochondria have had their own DNA in the same way kind of that like bacteria have their own DNA. It's sort of like a little a little critter that's both part so of our cell our and not part of our cell. Oh my god, Anna. I know it's it's this really difficult like, to so, explain. So like there's oh a god. really great bit about it in the Carl Zimmer book. She has her mother's laugh. But basically mitochondria carry their own package of DNA which is B-Y-O not BYO DNA. BYO DNA. Which is not affected by the kind of um, DNA splitting that happens during the production of sex cells, right? Because they're not involved in in that. So they're not affected by the combination of parents. So your mitochondrial DNA is just passed on in almost all cases by your mother. And so you can track maternal lines. There's like a one in a gazillion chance every so often that it's actually paternally contributed mitochondrial DNA, but that's a new study that I'm not that familiar with. But yeah, so mitochondrial DNA can be traced to kind of the idea of like uh, ancestral Eve, right? So like the mm, the mm-hmm. the sort of founding mothers Eve yeah mitochondrial is, Eve like that okay exactly is like sort of the first root population that can be traced back so these different populations have sort of a founding maternal source somewhere way okay. way way back and so for haplogroup X that founding source is thought to be from about thirty thousand years ago that's not in the third millennium no it sure isn't BCE. no gosh okay. it's sure not. It's not. Okay. And so lots and lots of people would have been sharing this haplogroup by the time the Minoans rolled around, including lots of people who were not Minoan. So 
The idea I guess statistically that, most people with haplogroup 10 uh, yeah. would be. <laughs> would, yeah, would and not so also 30,000 years ago is well before even the earliest dates proposed for the peopling of the Americas. Yeah. And so it is completely within the realm of possibility that the foundational populations that came over, uh, however they did it, that's still a bone of contention, but ho- however yeah. they populated North and Meso in South America, that population could have originated from a root population that had haplogroup X or that belonged okay. to haplogroup X. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, this haplogroup was around way before the Minoans. It would have spread throughout the world well, I mean, way before any semblance of... Way before urbanization. Yeah. Way like before any... agriculture. Yeah, this is hunter-gatherer homo sapiens. And so... And only, and like, you know, maybe what, like 15, 20,000 years after Neanderthals? We're yeah. still bopping around? Yeah, yeah. Not very... Like I sort mean, of in the... 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 In the long view of things, it's not very far after Neanderthals. Yes. So, but like closer to Neanderthals than to today. Correct. In terms of like who's, who's giving whom genetic material. Right. And so the overlay of the geographic distribution of haplogroup X and the known Minoan trading empire is nearly exact. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not. That's all. It's just, it's not because the haplogroup X contains it's actually much larger yeah it's huge and and much more widespread and so so it's just all of this is based on a faulty understanding of of how haplogroups work basically and it's sort of so blithely explained that if you are a person who is reading this without necessarily your default being critical thought Mm-hmm. You just go, oh, okay, wow, and you you might not follow it back to like, yeah. what does the haplogroup also, thing really mean? And also, you're you know you're taking this guy as an expert because he's he's wrote a book. Yeah, like, and I think that that's something also that like, why would you make that up? Like, just sort of like, why like why would you do that? Yeah. Like, like what neither, reason would the, you have the uncritical to, reader? I'd be like, well, yeah. you know, I don't know better. So yeah, why like, would he make that up? Yeah, like, um, thank you for explaining that. Yeah. Um, he points and so, to, and people are so inclined to accept genetic, like rattling off terms used in genetic studies as like, oh, there's DNA evidence, must be true. Yeah. It's very um, easily misused. Um, so the, what you point out about 30,000 versus 3,000 years ago um, is a really great lead-in to the thing that, that I read next that like made my brain like implode um, <laughs> when this like, so and mad. like not even like, well, like not even so much in like a mad way or like, this is so dumb way, but just in a like, no, it's not. And someone has failed you if you think that that's the case. Um, <laughs> and um, when he listens when to the, our podcast. When the author um, said, historically, Plato was quite close to the Minoans. And I was just like, that's not true. There's so much happening. Well, and just thinking, and I mean, and like, you know, and, you know, fair, fair play to like anybody saying, like, you know, in terms of like time, if we look at like sort of depends depends on the scale. Yeah. Yeah. But like, when was Plato? Okay, Plato was it he was still doing stuff in 350 BCE. He died a few years later. So okay. 350 BCE versus Minoans? conservatively talking about the end of the Minoans if we're going to like, you know, yeah. and when they may have sunk Atlantis and all that stuff. Um 
that's around 1100 BCE. So if we look at like sort of the, the amount of time between those two, I'm going to tell you a couple things that I came up with that are historically close to us in this moment. Oh, great, great, great. So within 750 years. Yeah, about okay. that about that much uh, great. time between us yeah, now and when that tell happened. Me, tell me. So that we like we can we can have a similarly like close. Yeah. So what was happening to uh, like what's close to us? What was happening 750 years um, ago? The Mongol Empire. Oh, I think of them as very historically happened. Close. Like you know, popped today. off. Genghis yep. Khan like like started the empire, and then, it's, yep. then it 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 grew and sort of coalesced um, around that long ago. Um, mm-hmm. At that time, um, in like the 13th century CE, yep. um, Cahokia, you know that that city that we lost. Remember that lost like, it, then the, found it, and then went. The oh, media is like, ooh, we lost it. Like found it out by the parking lot, the visitor center to Cahokia. Uh, <laughs> So the population of Cahokia was about the same as the population of London at um, contemporaneously. At that time, yeah, yes. the contemporaneously, they were the same size. No, um, London, this was, notable large city. Uh, it was a lot larger then than two hundred years later, when like at least a third of everyone died. Yeah, plagues are so this, tough. The so this was like pre-Black Death, London. So uh-huh. we have, um, so you know, I historically sure. we are quite close to the. Uh, sort of the peak population of Cahokia. Uh-huh. Um, and also uh, Marco Polo was tootling around then. Paisan. So, so these are all things that we are historically, historically close. quite close to. Um, and this is why, Anna, I was telling you that we should we need to do an episode. And this is a little teaser for what we'll be doing later in the year when I like get it together. It's just like talking, we're going to do an episode just thinking about time and just sort of what is... What is close to us in time? What is far in time? Like, how do we think about the past? Gonna need some snacks for that episode. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, so, like, that's just something that made me angry, but bummed me out. Um, and then the one last thing on this topic is remember um, when? Um, <laughs> remember all those sticky notes? Yeah. Remember all these sticky notes? So, like, we're gonna take a couple of them off the wall. Got the racism one off the wall. Great. Great where all the copper went, we figured that out. Cause one of the arguments is that like, well, where did all, if you mined all that copper, where'd it go? It, you sunk. If not to the Minoans. Uh, yeah. No, well, it, you know, Europeans used it. Europeans it's, used it. We just haven't excavated it. Um, it went elsewhere, long distance yeah, trade networks to like, get places. Like, and so there's one last thing that I want to talk about. There was another sticky note back there about there being no evidence for the Vikings or the Minoans or, um, oh God! There, one of the comments was like, "It it makes perfect Phoenicians? sense. It could be the Vikings, it could be the Vikings Berbers? or the Phoenicians." No, like, and um, I, I just read that, and I was like, "There's no like in no universe it doesn't it make perfect sense equally as plausible that it would be the Vikings or the Phoenicians. These two very similar like, cultures. Like we have failed you, commenter. The one last thing that I want to talk about is one of these pieces of evidence for the presence of someone else (laughs) (laughs) europeans asterisk um and so this thing literally asterisk and obelix this thing is the macintosh stone um and so the macintosh stone is uh so there's a looks like um, a potato yeah well yeah 
I'm going to tell you what it looks like in a minute. I know you're looking Sorry. at the photos, but I'm going to tell you what actually it looks like. Potato. Because I think perhaps what you think it looks like is not what it looks like. Because a man named Ron Rademacher knows what it looks like. Did, did man write book? No, man, man wrote, man did write book. I didn't read that book though. Um, man goes on podcasts, um, oh. which like, no, this is, um, there's this whole universe of sort of like oddities, like state, state-based. So sort of like little like oddities and roadside attractions and stuff uh, like state by yeah, state. Yeah. So you'll yeah, have yeah. these sort of like local historians. It's like the 10th amendment for like quirky history, like where each state like has its own thing. There's tons of stuff in West Virginia that I like know about, a lot about. I might, I, maybe I'm that person in West Virginia, but um, in Michigan, the person who does a lot of stuff about like oddities and like weird history and that, that whole corner that there's like sort of the horseshoe of like history and the paranormal and it like sort of it horseshoes around. And then you've got, that's where a lot of this stuff comes up. Um, and one of the things is the Macintosh stone and he goes on podcasts and I think he's, Oh, there was a couple episodes of ancient America unearthed or something like one of those like a cable like a a cable program about pseudo history um and so he this macintosh stone was a couple episodes about that we'll we'll include a link so you can look at this this little stone potato uh, for yourself but these photos that were taken a few years ago were really the first time that like people who weren't like immediately affiliated with it like got to see it. So just think if you read this, if you read the thing that I'm going to be reading, you'd to have you, a mental picture. You, you would have a mental picture and be like, oh, sounds pretty plot. Like that sounds like something like that. Like maybe I can't explain it, but that definitely is something, which is mm-hmm. like a big, like that kind of, there's a lot of room for people who to think that they're skeptical and kind of occupy that space of, and like, you know, I've said it on the show, like about sort of my like Bigfoot encounter. I'm just like, I don't know what it was, but I know it was weird. And like that sort of yeah. having that kind of thing. But Rademacher writes, <sighs> some enigmatic objects have been found in the region. We're talking about the peninsula. Uh, one is the Macintosh stone. In the mid-1980s, Charlie McIntosh was out picking agates on the tip of the Kawina Peninsula. Charlie was working an excellent field of stones about 50 feet above the shoreline. As usual, he picked up likely-looking specimens, and he put them in a bag. Back home, he went about cleaning debris from the stones in preparation for polishing. One stone, when washed, proved to be covered with odd engravings. The stone is small, about the size of two dimes laid side by side. Oh, it's really small. It's a little it's a, potato. It's a, it's a, it's a little petal it's a fingerling. Yeah, um, a new potato. Mm. Um, it is amazing that it was ever found at all amid a million stones of the same size. Amazing. The stone has a dark coloration, is almond-shaped, and has a whitish vein running through it. The stone is completely covered with engravings. There are images set in frames similar to cartouches. Hmm. The cartouche style would date these carvings in the first to third millennium BC. No, it wouldn't. On the night side, so there's two sides, we're going to refer to them as the... Yeah, yeah. So the night side shows a man kneeling in front of another man, receiving a blessing... Ship side shows a ship on the lower left. Above the ship is a symbol that has been inter- interpreted as a buckler, meaning 
thrust out to sea at launching. That's what a buckler is, I guess. Uh, a, a buckler. Yeah, no, it's a it's a small shield. A buckler is a small shield that's about the size of a dinner plate, and it's usually got a boss of metal right in the middle. So you can it doesn't really cover much of you, but it can be used as an additional punch weapon. Well, yep. this stone is the subject <laughs> of an article in the current issue of Ancient American Magazine, which Anna, I've looked into, and I'm going to subscribe now. I'm going to need to requisition some of our funds to buy the entire back catalog because Great. what? The article deals with the knight side, the knight side. Mm-hmm. The Macintosh stone is at the Nahma Inn in Nahma, Michigan. And maybe Nama. <laughs> yeah, you really put some That's spin one. on that. That might not be there. <laughs> um, so there are a range of opinions on the origin of this object and the correct interpretation of the carvings. Everyone I have consulted agrees that it is authentic and it is very old. I asked my mom. She says... One of- <laughs> One authority believes this is of Mediterranean origin. Another believes this is Native American. And so Rademacher is is now going to like sort of give the two sides. And then you can decide which it is. Okay, these are quotes, but I don't know. They're not attributed to anyone. (laughs) No, but he put them in quotes. Um, So so the style of carving, subject matter, and material of the stone clearly indicate an Eastern Mediterranean origin. The images and cameo or cartouche style indicate a date around the first to third millennium. You know, you can look at rocks and kind of determine where they're from in a lot of cases, right? I'll shut up. It seems obviously a human-fashioned amulet with deliberate zoning. So... Retail. <laughs> um, deliberate zoning to create separation of content loaded images. The white banding is typical of treasured stones from the lithic period of, say, 1000 AD to 10,000 BC. What does that mean? The lithic period? The lithic period. What? The lithic. Neo? Paleo? Calco? Yeah. No, just lithic. Well, I mean, 1000 AD to 10,000 BC. That's. It's got to be a lithic in there somewhere. There, there are several lithics represented in that time. Yeah. Um, the white banding or veining is an important element in determining authenticity. How? Absolutely, definitely a rock. Yes. Um, there are two special? obvious bird heads oh, and possibly a face. Now, Anna, while I'm reading this to you, I want you to scroll yeah, yeah, up and look yeah. at the images. Am I looking you at the those top? obvious the top bird top heads? Is the the canite side? No, I'm, I don't know what side you're looking at. Um, the one with the bird's head, bird heads on it, duh. I guess that could be a bird. Erosion has muddied the other images. They would require extreme relief differentiation to determine what those images depict. This is an enigmatic stone from the distant past, but obviously a former human treasure. Um, so this is the end of the That kind of looks like a shopping cart. <laughs> the above led to one interpretation of the carvings as a Phoenician prayer stone. The Phoenicians were a seafaring race, accomplished traders across the known world. Known to the Phoenicians, not known to us. Um, (laughs) uh, More than one of their ships has been found wrecked with a cargo of copper. Yep. Not wrong. Not wrong. (laughs) But used incorrectly. Gotta give credit where credit is due. Not wrong. (laughs) Like those ships exist. Um, Correct. The interpretation states that the working sailors were illiterate and many carried a prayer prayer stone to help him remember the time and order of his daily prayers. Um, Spider images have been around for a long time. Again, not wrong. (laughs) 
Um, They have been connected to powerful myths around the world for thousands of years. The earliest spiders, along with their webs, are painted on the walls of open rock shelters in Spain that date to the Paleolithic period, at least 10,000 years ago. Another obvious Mediterranean connection. Why is Um, it specifically, because there are no spiders anywhere except in the Mediterranean? They're not painted anywhere. Except in the Mediterranean? Not, not, Not during the lithic period. Um, and what so good something else, this is. something else I just wanted to, to mention is, um, I could find absolutely no evidence for prayer stones as being a part Anything of connected to Phoenicians. A, like, a Canaanite religion. We've talked yeah. about Canaanite religion in the past. And of course there were, there's no um, Moloch rocks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gotta say, Canaanite religion was highly diverse. Highly um, misunderstood. High, highly misunderstood, sometimes deliberately so. I don't know that there would be a timing for prayers throughout the day. Um, I think that timed prayers throughout the day are um, a largely Islamic thing. Yeah, I think it started there. Although and, I don't know. I don't, maybe there are other. And just, but just just saying, um, this doesn't make it Phoenician. Um, no. And I know that might be like a very small point. I may be missing the forest for the trees full of painted spiders from 10,000 years ago in the Paleolithic. But um, but so that's that's sort of what they have to say about the Mediterranean. Now, as for the Native American Hit me. origin for the Macintosh stone. Another authority sees clear evidence of Native American symbols and speculates that this stone was probably a fetish. Fetish as in a uh, religious item, not a kink. Yeah. Well, and also fetish specifically as a religious item used by a non-European person. Yeah. It gives it a sense of like, ooh, mystery. Exotic. Yeah. Mm. Like your, like one's rosary. That's not a fetish. It's often not. not called a fetish. No. Um, so, um, this authority, he, <laughs> top men, top, top men, uh, based top men, right book, top, top man bases his opinion on the presence of the crescent moon spider and phallus as well was as what, the, was that the shopping cart? Is that, <laughs> no, I think the shopping cart might be one of the birds. Um, uh, uh-huh. no, the shopping cart is the ship. Um, but it's, there's a no ship? ship. There's no, I think there's no ship if it, see, again, I don't know. Um, but we got a crescent moon, which conveniently, inconveniently for this argument, is something that you see <laughs> show up in, in those <laughs> iconography. Um, um, but the this top man d- dates this object around the first millennium AD. Objects with similar engravings have been recovered at Cahokia. The spider in particular is a length of those mounds. Mm. Um, I think two. Perhaps they link to those mounds. Yeah. Um, This stone was found just steps from Lake Superior near Copper Harbor. Um, Another link to the Cahokia copper trade. Um, Quote, the spider was an important symbol to the people of the Mississippian culture. Body of the spider also forms a cross with four groups of two legs each coming out of the body. End quote. Various interpretations are that the cross is a symbol of fire, the sun, center of the earth, or the four cardinal directions. Other opinions state that the spider symbolized the spider symbol was especially associated with women. It is also thought that the spider symbolizes weaving, fertility, the center of the earth, balance, and harmony. End quote. 
new quote. <laughs> then there is the interpretation of the spider symbolizes creativity and is the weaver of the fabric of life. Cotton? Just as the eagle... Just as the eagle symbolizes the divine spirit, creation, and freedom, end quote. Again, the patina is very rich. That takes time to develop, and the engravings are obviously worn. I hate this. So. But thank you for treating me to What? (laughs) What? There's no evidence for any of this. No. And so that's just, and also I think that um, I'm not including the Macintosh stone just to dunk on this one guy for like a long time. Uh, But it's just to, to look at like. The layers of, like the layers involved in pseudo archaeology and the layers involved layers involved in pseudo history, where you have there's a stratigraphy of them. I know, I know. You have somebody who describes something, and then sort of jumps off from there in various directions that are outside of one's expertise, and. Um, and, and it builds from there. And then once you have it cited, once it is citable, someone else will say, well, they did this because every, like something that, and this is a hallmark of bad scholarship just in general, like, and something that people like that are experts do also, they already, they did the work and they published that article, they published that book and you just cite it. And so if somebody, if somebody did something wrong, like if somebody did something wrong, made a mistake, there's yeah, a clerical error sort or something. Exponentially it, expanding it that builds. Error. Yeah, it's yeah. it snowballs and where it becomes just sort of like common common knowledge, but it's wrong. Um, and so this is sort of a small scale example of that with this this tiny stone, the super tiny stone, these high resolution images of the super tiny stone where it just looks like I don't know, it just looks like somebody carved a rock. Yeah, whatever. And not, they like gouged like, it just, a little bit. Maybe it was Charlie Macintosh. Yeah, could have been. I don't know. Or just like a kid at some point during the like 20,000 years, up to 20,000 years that people may have been living in this area. Scribbled on, on what, a rock with a sharp Depending on the, what like models you're following for the, like, the peopling of North yeah. America. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Like it does, it definitely does look like a human did it. Yeah, but that's, that's about cool. as much as you can say without... But squinting so hard you see a spider and then jumping to spiders are important in Phoenician iconography. And also, and also, and also the Mediterranean. Else. Like it just sort of, yeah, it's cool. Sometimes it's cool to find a rock. Like yeah. that's fine. But, but fundamentally <laughs> the biggest issue here is the fact that all of these explanations that put Europeans in the place where Native Americans definitely did this mining and definitely Mm -hmm. used this technology is to say that these populations, the Native American populations, couldn't have been capable of this technology because they were somehow inferior to Europeans. And so this fundamentally racist idea is maybe not one that is intentionally put forward by some of the people who believe these explanations, but it is the foundation upon which these explanations are based. And any anything that is used to bolster the explanation for something other than the local people doing this stuff is racist. And so, like, we've made that point before, but just to sort of tie a pretty pink bow around it and make it very, very clear. Just wanted to to leave that there. That's all I got. Yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. Again, thank you everyone for uh, allowing us a, a slight pause. Things are tough right now. So thank you for your patience. We will be back though next week with more content, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever else you like to listen. Our social, oh, we're on social media. Um, we're on Instagram at at the dirt pod at the dirt pod we're on twitter at dirt, at podcast. dirt podcast and we're on facebook at the dirt podcast and all of that stuff is funneled over to our website the remember if you're a geologist email us the dirt podcast at gmail.com um check us out over on patreon yeah check us out um just check us out we got we got stuff for sale. Check out the other shows on the Archaeological Podcast Network. Archaeology Podcast <laughs> on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Great shows. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff content there to there's be had. Very very cute stratigraphy. Um, oh, cell phone, phone case. case it's I so designed. cute. Yeah, it's cute. It's so, we, so cute. we have merch for our show. The APN has merch for our show. You can put your love for the dirt podcast on your shirt. Wear it on your shirt. The dirt. Put it on your shirt. Dirt shirt. TM. 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 Um, well, thank bye you. everybody. Thank you. <laughs> we love you. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.